I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and what a joy it is to be joined today by Hermione Hobie, who is the author of the novel Neon and Daylight, which was twice listed as a New York Times editor's choice. Her writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, The Guardian, The New York Times, and Freeze. Her latest novel is called Virtue. Hi, Hermione. Maris, thank you so much for having me. This is a real treat, a pleasure to get to chat to you in the middle of my day. Hi. I love this. I love this. And I loved Virtue so much. So thank you for that. You're welcome. (laughs) Hermione, I feel like one of the things that I haven't seen people talk about in relation to your novel is that this is a work of speculative fiction. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's sneakily it is. You're right. I I think it's in a way it's a work of wishful fiction and what I mean by that is well, so to to explain mm-hmm. um, is it is set um in our future uh sort of where are we? Like 15 years ahead of where we are now and it's a guy recalling 2016 and 2017. Um but I I don't give too many details of what that landscape looks like <laughs> is present um, because it is more about, you know, the novel is set basically in our recent past. Yes. Um, so what I mean by wishful is I think I found those years as I think so many of us did, those very recent years of the previous administration, so tyrannizing. And so um, they seem to make it so hard to imagine the future or one did imagine the future it was with a sense of doom like you know is this guy actually gonna you know steer us full tilt into fascist dictatorship Mm -hmm. um so i think the wishfulness was let me let me try and deal with with these years from the vantage of the future as in it was i wanted to be able to imagine a, a time in which 
this was the recent past rather than, you know, this, um, this totally prepossessing, brutalizing present that seemed inescapable and, um, you know, to be uh, making us all feel desperate and claustrophobic. Yes. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm projecting here, but no way. And and Hermione, so how do you how do you as an author write about the present? Basically, yeah. I mean, it now feels after a year and a half of pandemic, it certainly feels more in the past than it used to. Yeah, we used to just this, check this Twitter every day, and, right? But it's still like a recent wound that has certainly not closed in any way. Very much, very much. And yeah, of course, these these two big disasters, the previous administration and this pandemic, you know, they are not um, discreet, of course. They no, are correct. We merge into each other. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, trying to write about what was happening as it was happening was a huge challenge. <laughs> um, I think it was it seemed to me a way of redeeming what was happening. And by that, I I'm, don't mean to be making grand claims for my fiction or possibly even fiction at all, but by that, I mean, if I could use this as material, then somehow it was, it seemed rescued in a way from just pure awfulness. And I think this is just kind of what, what like the writing instinct is it's like I need to transmute this into something which has its own consonance and logic and hopefully through that a kind of beauty even if the subject matter is you know horrific and desperate and confusing <laughs> um so you know I mean not to sound terribly cheesy but I'm a writer because it's my only way of making sense of the world it's like a need Absolutely. If you keep saying you need to make a budget, but never do it. If somehow you keep missing credit card payments, if you're afraid to look at your bank statements, then it's time you take back control of your financial life. That's Truebill. Truebill is the all-in-one personal money app that works for you, empowering you to save more, spend less, and see everything happening with your finances. Famous for helping members save thousands, Truebill's all-in-one app helps you get smarter with your money with a clear financial picture, visual budgeting, powerful bill-cutting tools, and control unwanted subscriptions. Truebill's expert negotiators help their members save an average of 20% on bills like cell phones and internet. Take control of your financial life with Truebill today at truebill.com slash Maris. Don't keep losing money. Go to truebill.com slash Maris. You can save hundreds a year. Truebill.com slash Maris. It, it's so interesting that you talk about the role of fiction or, or writing in your life when one of the book's main questions is what role does art play in the act of quote unquote resisting, yeah. if any? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was the enormous question <laughs> occupying me even before, uh, you know, the 2016 election, but it made that question even more urgent. Um, I was talking to my um, partner recently about, this is going to sound quite silly, but I, I'm hope, I hope I will find my way towards something not silly. We were talking about, it was when the, the Gaza bombings were happening, and I said something like, 
I think I'd just taken like a cute picture of our cat and I was like <laughs> you know I feel ridiculous Instagramming the cat when you know kids are dying and he I didn't actually see this news story but he mentioned this news story in which you know there were pictures of these kids who'd like found their cat in the rubble and they were so delighted to find their cat and the point is you know he, he was just reminding me the point is we we want to stay alive so that we can pet our cat it's like that is what makes life meaningful it's yeah. not just about not being bombed and it's not just about there not being kids in cages at the border or a Muslim ban or the leader of the free world spouting like disgusting bigotry. It is about trying to, you know, solve those things so that we can take pleasure in our cat. And I guess by take pleasure in our cat, you know, I mean art. <laughs> it's like, yes. yes. Um, larger things that are uh, thing. exactly. or not. Exactly. Or not. Yeah, it's like, that's the point for me. It's like, that's what being human is. It's like, you know, uh, we are so lucky as human beings that we can delight in music and film and books and each other and all the rest. And, you know, that's what make life, makes life rich. And um, yet, I mean, and, and, um, and, and your characters feel the same way it's really rough when there's a crisis going on to remember that and to, to take yeah. time to, to, to imagine that the right of every person to experience joy might actually be what we're fighting for. Absolutely. I mean, you just put it so much better than I did with the, you know, the weird cat stuff. Yeah, the right to experience joy is exactly it. And I, you know, I, I've always felt very uneasy with the term escapism. Um, I wanted, you know, re reading felt even more urgent to me um, in those four years, I mean, still does. Um, but, you know, the last thing I wanted was escapism. I wanted like, well, this is awkward, but discoverism, you know, I wanted, sure. I wanted the truth. So the right to experience joy is absolutely right, but I think, the consolation of you know really good art isn't quite as simple as joy I always remember mm -hmm. um Toni Morrison saying why would I settle for happiness which I think is just it actually like gives me chills when I think of it because she's saying there are more interesting and enriching things than just happiness um and I I hope that that's what I mean you know that's what the novels that I love do to mm -hmm. me um it's not just you know, if I want to feel joy, I can just, I don't know, like... Cat videos. Yeah, cat videos. I was going to say, like, take a bunch of MDMA, but cat videos. <laughs> but hey, two great tastes. Why not both? Cat videos and drugs. Um, but, you know, that's fine. But it's not meaningful in the way that, I don't know, reading a wonderful novel or watching an incredible film is, in which the experience isn't just simply joy, but just a sense of things having meaning <laughs> yeah and of course for people who make art good art or otherwise <laughs> <laughs> i'm not subtweeting anyone by saying that um i, oh, I wish you were <laughs> we'll take this offline later um <laughs> by it's only right that someone who is attempting to do such a thing is invested in the idea that they can. 
-hmm. that that mm -hmm. what they're working on is something that can can bring a greater truth so. yeah yeah and that also was really hard to keep in mind uh in the recent past yeah especially for those of us i mean so let's talk about a little bit let's talk about the world in which virtue is set yeah yeah there is an unnamed literary magazine <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally listeners to the podcast <laughs> might want to do like a rhyme <laughs> well it's i mean yeah i i mean it's a composite in my mind sure i think that's right yeah yeah <laughs> i mean i i told you i think it's right yeah you're the one who can tell me um <laughs> but so so your main character luca is is an intern yes at this very fancy very old-fashioned absolutely literary magazine called the new old world which is a great name for conveying oh, such a <laughs> yeah um yeah and it becomes clear that the magazine has published some of the greatest voices of the recent past Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And also that they're losing the thread a little bit. Yep. Very much. They are, I guess I would say they are riding on their own prestige. And you no, know, I <laughs> I feel like I need a little disclaimer here, which is that I don't necessarily think this about the magazines on which sure. this is based. Um, I mean, particularly now, I think there is, mm -hmm. you know, I see in the states and in publishing obviously a you know woefully overdue um but energetic reckoning with um their role and their blindness and um a reliance on prestige and on the name um so <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, so my question was, yeah, you know, you can see them beginning the, the process of reckoning, but mm -hmm. by at least someone there asking, what is our role here? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Why are we here at this in, in 2016? Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I still feel really conflicted about this I go back and forth in that sometimes I think um, a magazine of literature does not have to be political and there is value in beauty and in wonderful writing and in oblique but meaningful ways that is itself political in that you know it's like consciousness raising and uh wisdom enhancing and compassion generating and all those things that uh we need as part of our civic discourse um and then other times i'm like no we need we need these magazines to be um 
you know, overtly um, staking their place and, you know, pushing for a progressive political agenda. Um, so I just, you know, I mean, I think people write novels because they feel <laughs> confused and, <laughs> have, yeah. yes, and have questions that they can't shake. And, um, but I think this kind of comes back to, you know, the, the way we began this conversation, the question of joy and pleasure. And pleasure can seem so suspect in a time of suffering, um, as though it's decadent. And this is also one of the questions of the novel. Um, I mean, I had a very, I was very much concerned with this sort of split meaning of the phrase, the good life, as in mm. the good life, as in, you know, the moral life, the one of civic duty and being a good citizen. And then the good life is in the life of pleasure and eating nice food and enjoying art and, and whether these things can be reconciled. And I think they absolutely can. I think there is, it's just that the question of like where you draw the line is, it's an unanswerable one as in like, am I doing enough? I mean, this was a constant question. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, like, uh, you know, is, is going on marches and volunteering for this place and donating to this place and much enough? You know, should I be donating more? Like, should I, I don't know, should I never indulge in any activity when I could be writing to my representatives or whatever? <laughs> um, but I think, I don't think anyone should feel uh, guilt about taking pleasure in life. Um, you know, that, that is one reason we're here. Um, uh, wait, I can't even remember how we began. I feel like, what was the question? Now I'm- Well, it was, <laughs> it was more about how does the magazine reckon with its role in, in whatever is happening in- Yeah, yeah. In the so there's a, there's a kind of, I mean, to, to oversimplify it perhaps, as in, I don't wanna, <laughs> do myself an injustice but there are two characters in, in which I think this struggle is sort of embodied yes so the magazine's editor is this very old guy called Byron Tancred and he's been there forever and he's essentially a good guy but of course he has been formed in another time and he was he was punched by mailer or pension once Luca does <laughs> not know <laughs> someone, someone, someone. Yeah. you can put that that person into context. And that is, yeah, his, his life's central fact, at least according to other people. Um, and then there is one of Luca's fellow interns, who's the, the kind of fourth character the, of, of these four characters, um, as in Luca, Jason and Paula, and then Zara. And Zara is a, a young black woman, uh, newly graduated from Brown, so well read that um, Luca is extremely intimidated by her and kind of awed by her. And Zara is, you know, kind of disgusted by the magazines um, sort of resting on its laurels and uh, it's not doing enough. Um, and so there is this struggle between, you know, this young black woman and this older, uh, white guy who is the the magazine's editor and you know maybe i'm i'm kind of <laughs> oversimplifying it um you know it's not like byron is a terrible racist it's i don't want it to be as blunt as that right right he's struggling to catch up um 
everyone is and I think they're at the magazine and there is this you know it's like a hyper self-conscious almost neurotic time um because suddenly all these um these evils and these horrors are in everyone's face and so there is this great self-consciousness about what what people should be doing and, and what is certainly right. Hermione, I, I felt this so many different times and I think Luca and so many of the characters in your book feel the same. Why wasn't I paying attention to this more yeah. before? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And with that comes a kind of guilt and the guilt isn't really useful um, and it's self-indulgent. Um, I mean, yeah, I think back to, so I moved to New York in 2010 and it makes me feel ancient when I recall that sort of <laughs> literary scene. Mm -hmm. um, it just seems like something from the fifties, you know? I'm like, yes. why did the men have all the power? And why was everyone white? I mean, not that everyone was white, but I mean, you know, no one. Predominantly. <laughs> but you know, I mean, the problem was that people of color were not getting published in these magazines and there was no awareness of this. It was like, yeah, everyone was just like stumbling around blind. Um, yeah. And then it's I could also, you know, I see from Zara's point of view, who are these people who've just kind of decided all of a sudden to care about their communities yeah. when, when, yeah. when, other people have been organizing and protesting and um, being at the forefront of, of such things for yeah. for a long time. And, and that feels awful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and of course it's like, you know, they're, they're not rushing to do this. Well, I mean, maybe they're rushing to do this out of a, you know, sudden awakening of conscience, but it's also like brand management, you know, it's like, we can no longer put out an issue in which everyone is white and mostly men, you know, it's like, you know, in inverted anymore. it's not a good look. And I find <laughs> it's not a good look, quite upsetting, because I just fear we are in a time of, um, a kind of presentationalism and sensationalism of politics in which it's all about how it looks. Um, and, you know, this is, I mean, <laughs> since the advent of TV, this, is, this has been a thing, but I feel like with social media, it's now even more of a thing. And, you know, this was such, this was so apparent, I think, um, during, the, you know, the summer, last summer, yeah. as we call it, the, the racial reckoning. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of good happened. And I also think there was and remains some kind of misprision whereby the, a, a kind of iconography is seen as more important than actual structural change. I mean, I just found it, I found it kind of grimly amusing that this phrase systemic or structural change peaked and was suddenly on everyone's lips at a time mm -hmm. when everyone was indulging in the opposite, you know? Right, right, it was right. All about, like, Quick fixes. Yeah, quick fixes and like, you know, posting your reading list to kind of, <laughs> yes, goals, yes. you know? And like, I'm pro-reading, obviously, but I feel like racism isn't fixed because some white lady, you know, Instagrammed the books she may or may not have 
read. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's wonderful. I don't mean to sound like a terrible cynical curmudgeon. It is wonderful that people were trying and, you know, were trying to educate themselves and hopefully still are. Um, but I think there was this, this emphasis on the individual. And I think we see this with the kind of mascotization, particularly of young women in these struggles. It's like, you know, headlines like Greta Thunberg or Malala or whomever can change the world. That is just, that's a fantasy. And no shade to these women or these girls. They are extraordinary. They're doing wonderful things. They're doing wonderful things, but they cannot change the world because the world needs to change through its structures and forms of governance. And, you know, not just by us, whatever, like retweeting Hermione, you you get at this so well. You, you know, I think it's on like in the first forty or fifty pages of the novel, um, Luca accompanies his fellow interns to the women's march. Mm -hmm. And what what can be more symbolic than women posing in their pussy hats with a sign that yeah. says "Pussy Bites Back" yeah. and <laughs> posting it all over social media? Yeah. And yet, I they purposely want to change. Yeah, right. here's the thing. I was so moved by the Women's March. I was, I was oh. sick for it actually, but I remember lying on a sofa watching, you know, all these scenes from around the world and it felt extraordinary. It gave me chills. I found it, you know, I believe in protest. I think the problem was there were no articulated goals. Like what was the Women's March? Um, I mean, I found, you know, I found the pussy hats, like, just a bit embarrassing and like, what? Like, <laughs> what is this saying? Like, what, what are we doing here? Um, uh, yeah, but I mean, in terms of, I guess I just keep thinking about what you said at the beginning of the conversation about a right to joy, because, um, I guess, you know, in, as we're talking, this all sounds like incredibly bleak and heavy and in a way the book is because it is set during these very trying years and you know I I think the book is ultimately kind of tragic but it was so important to me that it be a pleasure to read you know I, I was not it certainly was oh well thanks I didn't mean to <laughs> <laughs> um but it but was like even you even describe some of the middle-aged women at the women's march who were like I forget the the language you used specifically, but it was I like. Think it's, is it? Are you thinking of them? Is it something like joy scrawled across their faces, or yes, scrawled with joy? Yeah. And and again, who? Why? Why would we deny anyone such such right? Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I want, you know, I just wanted the book to be funny and uh have a lot of heart as well as a lot of anguish in it that yeah. was just so important to me it's like if I could you know articulate these things into some magnificent screed as Zara does mm -hmm. <laughs> I would, but I'm an I'm a incorrigible novelist <laughs> incorrigible. <laughs> and um, you know, reading a novel for me, it's about pleasure and beauty and joy, as well as, you know, engaging with the world in an honest way. So yeah, that's my manifesto. <laughs> yeah, and, and tell me about writing from the perspective of a 22 year old dude. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, because you get to have a lot of fun. Oh my God, that was so you. fun. Yeah, um, it's like portray some know. cluelessness. <laughs> yes. No, it was, um, it was great. I mean, I kind of joke, and this is a little crass, but I joke that um, so there's a scene in which he eats a Whopper and I'm a lifelong vegetarian. And, you know, that to me was way harder to write than, for example, like, you know, masturbating, like as a man. <laughs> way easier to imagine having a penis than eating meat. Um, uh, it was, it felt liberating and wonderful. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I always, when people are like, oh, why did you choose this? I always feel like, well, it might sound kind of pretentious, but it's not exactly choice. As in his voice just came to me, it was like, you know, that really awesome psychosis of how oh, I've got a voice in my head that needs writing down. Um, but it felt, I mean, it was lovely knowing um, that no one is gonna confuse this for autobiographical writing. Like, you know, I am most certainly not a 23 year old dude from Broomfield, Colorado. Um, so, but I also think, you know, writing in his voice, he's like a, well, as a straight, a, a mostly straight um, white man. Um, this it was a way for me to uh, engage with, I guess, with the politics of identity. Um, you know, he is very fretful about his identity category, and it's a maligned category for good reason. But of course there is such a thing as a good straight white man. I mean, some people would disagree with me. It seems and quite- he, he would like to be. <laughs> he would that. like to be, yeah. An ally. There's no such thing as a good man or a bad man or a good woman or a bad woman, you know, obviously, duh. We're, we're all a bit of both. Um, so I, I think maybe there was something like a little, little contrary in being like, okay, I'm gonna write in the voice of a, a white dude, a young white dude for, for this long. The world is racing to get back to normal and start meeting up in person again. But after this past year, getting back to feeling normal takes time. As much as I've loved seeing friends and colleagues IRL again, with that excitement comes a good deal of dread. If you're feeling overwhelmed by it all, you're not alone. It's important to find the support you need to face those feelings and move forward. We all talk to our friends when we're experiencing issues, but they don't always offer the advice we need. Getting unbiased feedback and advice from a licensed professional can be refreshing and actually rewarding. More than 50% of Americans struggle with their mental health. We all need help sometimes, and asking for support when you need it is actually a sign of strength. Talkspace works around your schedule at your convenience. Send and receive unlimited messages with your dedicated therapist in the app and schedule live video sessions with your licensed therapist from anywhere. Whether you're experiencing depression, anxiety, or other problems, Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform to help you sort through any issue with thousands of licensed therapists available to match with you. Talkspace therapists are experts in dozens of specialties. Start feeling better with a single message. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with the promo code MARISREVIEW. That's $100 off when you use code MARISREVIEW at Talkspace.com.
Hermione, I appreciated that he, from his point of view, wasn't the overly confident, um, <laughs> yeah, he's proudly gonna... mediocre. Like, these insecurities were coming through, and and I was I remember being twenty two and going to my friend's apartment and seeing that they had a table where they ate. And I was like, whoa, they're fancy. Oh my God. <laughs> and Luke made me think yeah. of that. That is totally, it's this, I just relate to that so much. I remember being, I'm afraid to say older than 23, perhaps even 27 and coming back to the UK to visit my brother who's just 18 months older and uh, you know, lives in a house with a mortgage and has kids. And I opened the larder door because mm -hmm. he had and has a larder and it was just full of food. And I just, I was like, we are just 18 months apart, but I am a hopeless, feckless child. And like, I can barely <laughs> afford my groceries. And it's like, you know, there's like a jar of pickles in my fridge and that's it. And here's my brother who has a larder. <laughs> And and so you introduce the characters of Jason and Paula into Luca's life, and not only are they on their own a charismatic couple, yeah. but they have this easy confidence that comes with age, uh -huh. money, money, yeah, big time. Yeah, and a degree of talent. I mean, I didn't want those two to be reprehensible. Um, mm -hmm. They're really lucky. And um, well, Paula has money. And so by extension, Jason has money too. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I was thinking a lot about the confusion between taste and wealth. <laughs> and I think this is something Luca experiences. You know, there's a scene in which he's first at their big, gorgeous, like beautifully appointed cobble, or maybe it's Boreham Hill. Anyway, cobble, cobble, cobble Hill, thank you. <laughs> it went back and forth, I think. <laughs> They're Cobble Hill home and there are like fancy French candles burning. Mm. And, you know, he's taken by these, but he's also taken by the great art on the walls. And, you know, all these things kind of come from money, but also taste. And it's hard for him and perhaps for all of us to, to kind of, um, you know, divine in that sense, like what is, what is kind of noble and beautiful and what is just, oh, they're just rich. So you know, <laughs> it's easy to have good taste when you're rich. <laughs> and of course, for Paula, who, it, it, one of the biggest insults you can call her is a, a socialite. Yeah, yep. Right. It's so important to have this identity as a creator of art and not just yeah. someone who enjoys nice things. Definitely, yeah. And I wanted this question of how legit is she as an artist to be not fully answered? As in, I have a sense that she is truly talented and then perhaps as the novel goes on, she succumbs a little more to her bullshitic tendencies <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, you know I don't I don't want her to be yeah I mean you know there's no such thing as like I don't know what am I saying I'm saying that the idea that 
you know, some kind of divine power just comes down and anoints an artist as legit. It just isn't true. It's like, you know, you and I probably have writers we love and we're like, eh, yeah, but that novel, not so much, you know? <laughs> it's like, we still love them. It's just, they're, they're fallible. <laughs> and that one didn't quite work. And, um, you know, maybe, I don't know. I mean, Paula kind of becomes more famous. And I think that is often <laughs> a compromising factor for an artist. Um, yeah. Um, so she does believe in art. And that was important to me. Like it's, she's not, she's not a fraud. She's not a phony. She really does believe in it and really does love it. And there is something sincere and genuine and passionate. And I think alluring in that. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I mean, one early reader was like, oh my God, these people are terrible. You know, I cannot stand them. And I was like, ah, oh, I think I need to go back in and do a little, little adjustment just so that they're not <laughs> they don't come across as totally awful but it was also quite exciting to me that in the you know in the <coughs> excuse me sort of early reads everyone responded in different ways to the characters mm -hmm. and that to me felt like um that's how it should be you know that because the relationship of a reader to a character is so personal it's like you build that character from your own life um you know, there's that gap between what is on the page and uh, and kind of what you imagine. And it's almost like this joint creative act between reader and writer. And so, you know, I always, I'm always very taken with this idea that there are as many versions of a novel as there are readers. Yeah. Um, it's like we all, we all share in this basic same story and we kind of all know who these basic characters are, but they're different to all of us. And you know, I was talking to one friend, she was like, oh, you know, I picture Paula like this with brown hair. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I mean, it explicitly says in the novel, she has blonde hair, but it was awesome to me that my friend just created this image of her that was entirely her own and compelling and completely different to my image of Paula. So Hermione, we have to both hope and um, also hope not for a for a film version of this <laughs> <laughs> oh I would love a film version yeah that would be really fun um, there is something really freeing about being able to make a novel whatever you want it to be in your absolutely mind. I mean the the film version so the way this works is everyone who ever would want to read the novel reads it you know in in terms of in infinity infinity into the future and then we make the film which of course is impossible <laughs> if only talk about a utopian um future <laughs> hermione this has been so much fun um oh, maris thank you so much it is wonderful talking to you thank you for reading the novel with such before attention we, before we go please tell us, uh, give us some book recommendations. Oh my God. Yes, I should have prepared this, shouldn't I? Okay, what have I been reading? I just read a really excellent um, reissue of a novel from the 60s. It's a um, New York Review of Books reissue called The Stone Face, um, which is by um, William Gardner Smith. Um, it's about a, uh, a young black American guy uh, living in Paris 
and having, in fact, a kind of political awakening. So perhaps it spoke to me for that reason. Um, that's really wonderful. Um, I, I just reviewed the new Sally Rooney, um, which may be in the world by the time this airs, but um, I love her and I think she's extraordinary. Um, oh, I really, I really tore through Josh Cohen's The Netanyahu's, which is hilarious. Um, he's such a bloody genius. Uh, oh my God, what else? I mean, I'm thinking more of recent things, um, yeah. but I could throw it back to, um, I, I love Norman Rush and I, I read Mating and Mortals in I think 2019. And I almost feel like I just want to read both of them again. Um, He's Hermione, me. I was thinking about a mating reread, so maybe uh, we, we should let's do it. Yay! Love. <laughs> okay, good. Well, thank <laughs> you so much, Virtue. So much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.